You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 4, Paul says this, So, my brothers, you also died to the law. Question, what does he mean? If you're dead to the law, what relationship do you have to the law? Is it your responsibility to do as well as you can? Are you, are you supposed to be working as hard as you can at doing what's right? Paul says we've died to the law. Apparently, that's something which wasn't true earlier. Apparently, at, at a previous time, we were alive to the law. And now Paul says you have died to the law through the body of Christ when our Lord hung on the cross. And the reason for having died to the law, Paul says, is that you might belong to another, no longer to the law, but to someone else, for the purpose that you might bear fruit to God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul has been captured by the good news of the gospel. He understood what it meant to be dead to the law, and he realized the freedom that came from that. And in his desires to make the gospel known, he says in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, Thanks be to God, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance, the good smell, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, to those who are perishing on their way to hell, we're the smell of death. But to the other, we're the fragrance of life. And then Paul's overwhelmed by this. He says, the news that I have is so incredibly good, how can I even dare to submit that I'm competent to handle this? Who's equal to such a task? Chapter 3 and verse 3 Paul talks about the results of his ministry in people's lives, and he says that you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. Apparently, I am adequate for the task, because as I've ministered to you, something has happened in your lives. You show that you're a letter from Christ. You're the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Notice the analogy to the law. Tablets of stone takes your mind back to Exodus 20, where the law was written on tablets of stone. And Paul says something is different in your relationship to what you're required to do. No longer are you the kind of people who have tablets of stone for hearts, but now you have fleshy hearts, tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence from, from, comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Jerry read in Jeremiah 31 that God said he's going to introduce a new arrangement, a new approach to life, a new way of living. And Paul said, I've been made a minister of a new covenant, and this new covenant is not of the letter, not of those laws that were written on the Ten Commandments. No longer does the law have a bearing on your life. Rather than being a minister of a covenant of the letter, rather the new covenant is the covenant of the Spirit, he says. For the letter kills. If you try to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. If you make it your business to do as good as you can every week, you've missed the gospel. Now, if the ministry that brought death, 2 Corinthians 3, going on to verse 7, if the ministry which brought death, namely the Ten Commandments, God giving the law, 
which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit of the new covenant, of the new arrangement under which you and I live today, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? What was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory of the new covenant, implied. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, what's he talking about? Are those his words that I'm reading to you? For many they are, I know. But Paul, for Paul they were more than words. We have a hope that somehow liberated Paul to a level of boldness, the like of which had never before been seen. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, when somebody says, here are the biblical principles for how to, happy ma how to have a happy marriage, here are ten things to do, go out and do it, that's an old covenant sermon. But verse 16 is a remarkable verse. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Another translation has it this way, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free. Some time ago, I was speaking with a woman whose 16-year-old daughter had just attempted suicide. And the news of her attempted suicide hit her hard, as of course it would, much like a severe kick in the stomach would take away your breath, and she was just gasping to find some way to stabilize in the middle of an awful situation with her daughter. And as she struggled to recover from the shock of what had happened with her daughter, one question kept pressing itself on her mind. Suppose that had happened to your child. What question would you be asking most immediately after you hear bad news about your kid? Isn't one of the most natural questions to ask, where did I fail? What did I do wrong? Had I done differently, would my daughter be in this bad shape that she is in today? A natural question, I suppose, a question that I'd be prone to ask in a similar situation. But I want to suggest that it's a question which assumes something. Now follow my thinking today very carefully. Something bad happens, your daughter tries suicide, your first thought is, why did it happen? What did I do that led to this sorry state of affairs? What could I have done that would have changed things? Here an assumption behind that question. The assumption is this, that there really is a right way to handle your kids. The assumption is that there is a standard, a right way to handle your kids that God has somewhere made known in his word, but that evidently you missed it. Otherwise, your kid wouldn't have tried suicide. The assumption of a standard external to you that you have to figure out and try to keep. This particular mother that I was working with told me that as she reflected on the childhood of her daughter, she said, I think I know what I did wrong. I think I know what the standard is that I blew. The standard is this, that um, you need to have a certain level of involvement with your children, and I think I simply wasn't very involved with my kids at all. I was too busy. This particular lady was a missionary. 
And she said, I was just too busy with the things of the Lord, you know, writing missionary letters, and I didn't take time when my daughter was a little girl to bake cookies with her enough, you know, and didn't take time to spend time and chat and read storybooks. All we did was provide a bunch of rules against rock music and wrong boyfriends, and we never took time to sit down and really chat. And I think what I need to do now, what I must do now, is, is, is move toward my suicidal teenage daughter with a new level of involvement. I want to get close to my daughter and just have chats. Now, as that lady shares that, do you hear a sense of freedom? Hear any joy in that? Or do you hear a desperate kind of pressure? I hear the pressure. Why? What's wrong with her reasoning? Another couple that I worked with had another situation in their family, another daughter that was doing badly in some ways, and um, they were telling me that uh, as they asked the, the inevitable question, what did we do wrong, How, what should we do differently? As they began to ask that question, they came to a very different conclusion than the first parent. They made the conclusion, they came to the conclusion that their error was too much involvement. They were the hovering kind of parent. You know, the kind of parent, whatever the kid comes from school, you run up and grab them and say, how was school today? And after four or five years of that, some of you parents know this, what, what do your kids do? They give you one-word answers at best. And you feel pressured to get them to talk. And you work to involve yourself. You never miss a ball game. You never miss a dance recital. You never miss a whatever. You're always involved. And these parents came to the conclusion that our problem was way too much involvement, and we've got to back up a bit. Dr. Crabb, what do you think? Is that a good idea? There's an assumption behind those questions that I want to highlight very clearly. The assumption that the way to live life... If you're going to live life effectively, what you must do is figure out what is the right thing to do and then do it. Or to put it differently, the assumption behind the reasoning of so many of us is this. There really is a right way of doing something. God knows it. And our job is to figure out what that right way is and then try very hard to do that. Think how typical it is for you and me in the course of a week to ask the question, What's the right thing to do? What should I do? Think how often in a relationship with your spouse or with your best friend some tension comes up and you're in a particularly spiritual mood and you want to do it right. And you begin to ask, well, what's the right thing to do? What should I do in this situation? Yes, I'm angry at my spouse. Yes, what my spouse did has really precipitated major anger in my soul, but I'm not sure what I should do about that. Should I go to my husband and tell him I'm furious at you? Or should I be patient and not say a thing? What's the right thing to do? I've tried it both ways. Neither has worked. Is there a refinement that's possible? Situations with kids are so common where a problem comes up, maybe a little tiny problem every day, and the parent right away feels a certain pressure in his soul because he makes the assumption there's a right way to do it, and his job, her job, is to figure out what it is and get on with it. A friend called recently and told me about a terrible secret that he has. A secret of something which has happened in his life that very few people know about, and if this knowledge got out, it would change a lot of things in very negative ways. And his question of me was, should I tell certain people? What's the right thing to do? Again, do you hear the assumption? That for every situation in life, there's a right thing to do, and the job of the Christian is to figure it out by going to enough sermons, reading enough books, reading your Bible enough to figure out what's right, and then to try to do it. The assumption that there is a standard of right and wrong that we're responsible to understand and obey. We're responsible to figure out what is right and to try hard to do it. Is that the way you think? Freedom, what it isn't, trying hard to do right. Freedom, 
what it is, today's message. And I want to study not the pressure to try harder, that was last week, but I want to rather talk about the pressure to figure out what we're supposed to do. Now follow my sequence. Last week, the pressure to try harder. And I said that's not the route to freedom. I want to talk today about a similar pressure, but a more basic one, I think. The pressure to figure out what do I do in this situation with this loved one, with this child, with this parent, with this friend, with this spouse. What am I supposed to do? Do you feel a pressure to figure that out? Do you spend your days asking questions like, what am I supposed to do? Did I do the right thing? Honey, did I handle the kids right? Husband, did I do this right? Wife, did I do that right? Counselor, did I handle this properly? Should I be more this? Should I be more that? And you ask those questions time and time again and end up just what? Feeling confused and pressured. Isn't that true? What are we supposed to do about the fact that, um, that God does have a law? We all know he does. God's a God of a definite character. God has standards of right and wrong. There's no question of that. But Paul says that because of what Christ has done, somehow our relationship to the fact that God has standards has been entirely revolutionized. God has standards, yes, you handle that wrong, that can be accurately said about certain situations. You handle that well, that can be said about certain situations. But Paul says, we're dead to standards. We've died to the law. What on earth is the man talking about? I believe Paul is telling us that we have an entirely different relationship to God's law, which means that you and I, as we understand the gospel, never again need to ask the question, is this the right thing to do? There is no freedom in the requirement to measure up. Two cautions I want to give you as I develop this, um, this material. Caution one is that what I'm teaching can be very easily misunderstood. And I, and I covet your attention this morning. What I'm teaching can be badly misunderstood. Be aware that what I am not saying, what I will never say as long as I stay true to God's word, what I am not saying is that you and I as Christians can develop a casual attitude towards sin. I'm not saying that because the cross of Christ has paid for all of our sins, therefore we no longer need to worry about sin. We can sin all we want. You want to have a good time? Go have a good time. You want to sin all you want? No problem. The blood of Christ pays for everything. So go have yourselves a blast and sin every way that you want to. I'm not teaching that. But as I teach what I believe Paul is saying, some of you are going to think I'm teaching that. And that, I believe, the fact that you might possibly think I'm teaching, don't worry about sin, go sin all you want, the fact that you may misunderstand me that way puts me in good company because Paul was similarly misunderstood. If we teach the gospel properly, one of the most common misunderstandings that is going to arise is that it's okay to sin, go have a good time. How often do you hear a sermon where you leave wondering if it's okay to sin? Is that pretty common? How often do you hear a sermon where you kind of say, is he saying it's okay to go out and have an affair? Is he saying it's okay to cheat your income tax? He says it's okay to lose your temper? Is he saying don't worry about the law, do whatever you want? How often do you hear sermons where, where you might misunderstand that? Isn't it more typically the case that you walk out having no question, you better mind your P's and Q's? Here's what you ought to do. Are you doing it? Folks, that's old covenant preaching. If I'm misunderstood, then I'm in good company. I'm not saying it's okay to sin, but when you teach what Paul teaches, you come very close to saying that. That's my first caution. My second caution is this. 
not a caution so much of a statement as I begin this, this thought. Just a personal word. As I've studied this material for the last several weeks in preparation for this message and for the series, I really do feel like I've stumbled on a new dimension of the truth that has been hidden to my heart for years. I really do believe that the gospel is far better news than I've understood. And I believe that the Bible is clearly teaching, I wonder why I've not seen it before, I believe the Bible is clearly teaching something which, when grasped, even for a moment, creates a level of joy which finally makes sense to me of Peter's words when he said, I know what it is to have joy inexpressible. can't tell you how many old people I've asked over the years define joy. Because in the core of my being, I've known there's been nothing that I can call joy. There's been pressure. But I know something about joy now. And I long to impart it to you because it's available to all of us. Our job today is to define what freedom is by understanding what it means to be dead to the law. That's what I want to do today. The topic is freedom, what it is. And we're going to define the freedom that I believe is ours as Christians by trying to understand what it means to be dead to the law. Paul teaches that very clearly. We're dead to the law. What does that mean? In order to properly understand what it means to be dead to the law, we're going to have to get a little bit technical. So think with me. I want to introduce a couple of technical phrases with which many of you are familiar and perhaps many of you are not. And the two phrases that I need to introduce to explain what dead to the law means are the two phrases. One, the old covenant, a theological term that some of you know about quite well. Many of you have heard of and don't know what it is. And the other term, the new covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Let the word covenant simply mean agreement or arrangement. There's a certain arrangement between God and people that formerly was of a certain character, and we call that the old covenant. The way God worked with people formerly, we call it the old covenant. The way God is working with us today is a new covenant. And Paul said, I've been made a minister of a whole new approach to life, which when you understand, you're going to see that it's good news. The old covenant and the new covenant need to be understood in order for us to make sense out of being dead to the law. People who operated under the old covenant, people who live today under old covenant understanding, and that's common, that's what most of our churches are filled with, people who live by the old covenant without knowing it. But people who live by the old covenant are people who approach life this way. See if it fits you. People who live by the old covenant approach life this way. They assume that whatever the law of God says, they must do. Is that how you live? They assume that God has a plan for your life. God has specific instructions for everything. He gives principles in his word, and it's your job to translate the principles into specific standards for what you should do at this moment with your spouse. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command, a principle in, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. And my job is to figure out what that means in this situation on Tuesday afternoon in the middle of a conflict. And whatever that particular verse means in this situation, I'm totally responsible to make it my business to obey. Therefore, old covenant-type people are continually asking the question, what am I supposed to do? Old covenant people approach life when they're serious about God by asking the question, what, what am I supposed to do? What's right? There's a new covenant. 
which replaces the old. The old covenant, people say what's right, and then typically feel confused and frustrated and defeated, or some people feel like they pulled it off and then get proud. Pride or defeat, the two possible results of the old covenant. That isn't the fruit of the Spirit. There's a new covenant, Paul says, of which he's a minister, and new covenant people are very different. New covenant people no longer say there is a standard, there are laws, there are principles. My job is to see what the principle is, how to love my wife, how to submit to my husband, how to raise my kids, how to be a good employee, how to be a good employer, how to be a good citizen in my country. There are principles, and I must find out what God says and make it my business to do it. That's old covenant thinking. Paul says there's a whole new way to approach life in which God says we're dead to the law, we're dead to those standards, and now the question is this, and those of you who are theologically astute will want to throw a shoe at me in a moment, but be patient. Covenant people say, what do I want to do? Not what am I supposed to do, but what do I want to do? That's an entirely different question. Your kid comes home late, curfew's midnight, he walks in at two in the morning. What do you want to do, parent? Homicide's not appropriate. And so you say to yourself, well, what I want to do, I shouldn't do. What should I do? Should I blow up? Should I be calm? Should I go up to him and say, why are you late and ground him for 10 years? What am I supposed to do? And you rush to the bookstore and buy the latest Christian book on how to raise kids and get more confused. New covenant thinking frees that parent not to worry about what's right. But to ask, what do I, as a believer, really want to do and then willingly do it? There's a question that pertains to the Old Covenant, and the question is, what am I supposed to do? I promise I'll try. There's a question which pertains to the New Covenant, and that is, what do I really want to do? I'm free to do it. Let me talk about those two questions. The question of the Old Covenant. You see which covenant you're living under. See if you've understood the Gospel in a way which frees you to be a new covenant type thinker. In the old covenant, the question is, what am I supposed to do when my kid walks in at two in the morning? What am I supposed to do when my wife does such and such and irritates me? What am I supposed to do when my parent calls me in the morning and talks about herself more than about me on my birthday, the illustration from last week? What am I supposed to do when my boss doesn't recognize my abilities and I'm grinding inside? What's the right thing to do? That's the old covenant question. Ask it, and you'll live in pressure till the day you die, and you'll never have joy in your heart. You'll never have anything you want to share with people, because when you witness, what you'll be saying to yourself is, come join my religion, you too can feel pressure. The old covenant is simply an arrangement between God and man, where God provides the standards, and people seek to understand them and obey them. We're talking now about the Old Covenant and its question. What am I supposed to do? I want to discuss these two questions and then we're going to quit. The Old Covenant is simply an arrangement between God and man where God provides the standards and people try to understand what those standards mean and then obey them. Look back at Exodus 24. And Exodus 24 is a great example of how the Old Covenant worked. In Exodus 24, verse 3, you read the following words. Exodus 24 and verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, 
Everything the Lord has said, we will do. It's the Old Covenant. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. That happened thousands of years ago, somewhere around Sinai. And it happens in most churches every Sunday morning. Are you committed? Those who are committed to live for God, raise your hand. Aha, those who are not raising your hand have a spiritual problem. Let's pray. And those whose hands are raised, you're committed to doing what you ought to do. Come to church and we'll tell you what that is. An invitation to a life of pressure. An invitation to a life of no joy. We will do whatever God says. Is that what the people should have said? Is that not what you and I say? Most of us approach the Christian life just that way. We promise to do whatever God says, and we commit ourselves to doing what is right, and then we go to church, or go to a seminar, read a book, and try to figure out what we're supposed to do. The key is to figure it out. And because you're never sure, you're always asking people for help. Folks, I make a living off the old covenant. Think about that. Don't get hold of this stuff too quickly. I just... Um... <laughs> Some of you are so sick and tired of the pressure to figure out what's right. You're so sick and tired of the bondage of the way you've been raised in some cases, the way you're living now in other cases, that you've essentially given up trying to live the Christian life. My response to you is, praise the Lord, you're giving up the old covenant. But don't give up the good news. Many others are still trying hard to figure out what God wants you to do. And you're studying your principles and your ideas and your techniques on all sorts of subjects. And you know how it works. You go to a seminar and you figure, man, that's it. I think I found how to do it. Here's the way to live. Been so confused about this teaching on submission now I went to the seminar where the guy talked about submission in a whole new way. That's it. Now I'm going to do it. I'm freed to live by this new standard, which now I figured out. How long does an insight last you? How much joy does it provide for how long? Most of you have your red notebooks on the shelf. The Jews heard God's law. And they promised to obey it, just like many of us have. You've heard God's law, and you've promised to obey it, just like I have, just like you have. I've made promises, I've made vows. How well has it worked out? Look at Exodus 32. Remember, we just read where the Jews said, whatever you say, God, we'll do it. Just tell us, we'll do it. Anything you say, it's, it's, our, it's our will to do your will. And in verse 7 of Exodus 32, just a little while after they had said that, listen to the Lord's comment. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 32 and verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, Moses. And his phrase here is so sad because your people, not my people, I'm sick of them. Because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, no, God, you did that. I don't even want to own them, God is saying. Because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, they've become corrupt. Verse 8, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and what they had committed themselves to. They've been quick to turn away from my commands, and they've set up idols. 
Folks, we must understand all the law does is to show us that we're imperfect. It doesn't guide us to how to become better. When God says, here are my standards, if our response is, teach us more of your standards because we're committed to doing whatever your standards are, you'll fail and you'll have pressure. The purpose of God's giving the law was not as a pathway for life, but rather as a way of exposing that we're not able to keep the law. The law was to show our weakness, not to provide us with directions on how to live. But because we don't understand that, we say, God, we'll do it. We get caught up in certain services and walk down aisles and raise hands and make promises. And then we fail. Recommit ourselves, fail again. Eventually we get discouraged and quit trying so hard or we pretend that we're better than we are. Folks, it's old covenant living. External standards to which we must conform. Don't drink, don't cheat on your wife, read your Bible every day, don't miss church. We know those standards are good and they are. Those are laws from God. The law is good. Paul makes that clear in his epistle to the Romans. The law is good. But we assume that our relationship to the law is one of having to work hard to do what the law says. Paul says, we're dead to the law. What's he talking about? It's good news that we're dead to the law because no matter how good you might think you're doing, and you're saying, well, I'm doing pretty well, I'm keeping the law pretty well, devotions every day, witness once a week, Never miss church. I'm doing fairly well. Folks, if you make it your business to live by the old covenant and say, here are the standards, I'm going to measure up to them. Let me tell you what the Bible says. If you miss one time, you're guilty of all. That's bad news. How would you like taking a test where you make the slightest error, you always get an F? There's no A minus. There's no B plus. There's no passing grade of a C. If you don't score 100 every time, you always get an F. That's the law. Is that how you want to live? How you doing, husbands, and loving your wives? Pretty good, right? Well, perfect, not exactly. Then you have an F. Encouraged? Go try harder. Maybe you can pull an A this week. Well, I did real well. I got a 98. That's an F. I got a 100. Give me time. I'll show you that you didn't. You didn't get a 100. Give me your break. No way. Not if you live by the law. The law gives no breaks. That's the gospel, as it's often taught in our churches. Small wonder that we have legalists with no joy. There's a new covenant. It's good news. The question of the new covenant is, what do I really want to do? Look at the passage Jerry read to us, Jeremiah 31. And listen to what God says in Jeremiah 31, the same verses Jerry read to us before. Listen to them again. Verse 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant. Paul said, I'm a minister of the new covenant. A new arrangement, a new way of living life, a new approach to living that brings joy, not death. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. You want life, it's the spirit. You want death, it's the letter. God says, I've got a whole new plan. Listen up here, it's great news. I'm going to make a new covenant. Verse 32, it's not going to be like the old one. It will not be like that covenant I made with their forefathers when I said, here's my law. They said, we'll do it, and they didn't, so I killed them. No longer will it be like that. 
I'll make a new covenant that will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. I didn't fail in the covenant. I was a good husband to these people who I called to myself as my wife, and they failed, but they're going to continue to fail because the law is weak in that the flesh cannot carry it out. You can't keep the law. So the old covenant doesn't work anymore. God said, I'm going to throw it away. Got a whole new plan. What's your new plan, Lord? What's this new covenant that Paul's a minister of in 2 Corinthians 3? Well, God tells us in verse 33, here's the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time. Words that many of you are familiar with, what do they mean? Here's the new covenant. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, they will be my people, no longer, verse 34, I'm going to comment on just a minute, very important verse, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. The preacher who gets up front and says, I'm going to teach you how to know the Lord, here are the instructions, go do them, there's no longer a need for that preacher. Because they're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness. Remember their sins no more. In the Ezekiel text, which Jerry read, God said he's going to give us a heart of flesh as opposed to a heart of stone. What's the new covenant? What's all these words mean? The new covenant's an entirely new relationship with God in which keeping the law is no longer the point. The new covenant's an entirely new relationship with God in which we understand that the purpose of the law is to show us is to show us that we cannot measure up. The purpose of the law is not to get us to measure up. That was the old covenant. When we realize that we cannot keep the law, when we realize that we cannot love perfectly, and if you don't realize that, you have no understanding of your sinfulness. When you and I realize that we cannot keep the law, we can't love perfectly then we admit that we're sinners. And as I mentioned last week in God's courtroom, any, any violation of the law of love at all is worthy of death. Banishment to hell forever, that means I deserve it, and so do you. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We deserve punishment. The old covenant says, you want to live? Do better. Paul said, nobody has ever been justified by the deeds of the law. No one made it to heaven through old covenant thinking. The new covenant begins with the work of Christ. See, the good news is this. The reason we're dead to the law is not because the law was bad and God said, well, I tried that, we'll not use that anymore. The reason we're dead to the law is because Christ kept the law for us. When the Lord lived for 33 years, do we understand that not once did he ever do anything less than absolute perfection? He got a hundred on his test of life every day for 33 years. Never failed once. Never a word that was motivated by self. He delighted to do his father's will. He got an A-plus on his test, and that's the only passing grade. And when you and I become Christians, what God does is he takes the perfection of our Lord, and he declares that we now benefit from that. If you want a fancy term, it's called the doctrine of imputed righteousness, where God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, and now God says, Larry, I'm going to treat you as somebody who has kept the law perfectly, therefore you're no longer responsible to worry about that. It's yours. It's a gift. But Lord, I've sinned. Yeah, I know. I'm not ignoring that. My son died for those sins. 
He took your sins and he gave you his righteousness. That's a deal, folks. And that frees me now from the responsibility to feel the pressure of doing what I must do. I am now dead to the law. And what that means is my approach to life can now be entirely different. I'm dead to it. I'm no longer required to keep it. It's no longer a standard that I have to figure out and try to keep. When I believe in Christ as my Savior, he gave me a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And what that means is this, that I now have within me, I'm a Christian. And most of you are Christians. Some are not. Trust Christ this morning. You can become one now. But if you're a Christian, you have a new heart. Now, what on earth does that mean? It means... Dare I say it? You can trust yourself a little bit. It means that when something comes up that you're not sure what you ought to do, rather than saying, what am I supposed to do? You begin to look deep into your heart and to say, what do I, as a loved child of God, really want to do? That's the issue, not what am I to do. What do I want to do? That's new covenant thinking. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, he says that um, no longer are we going to have any teaching. That contains the essence of a whole new approach to life. No longer do we say, I'll try to do what I should. Will somebody please tell me what's right? Now, rather than turning to others, I turn to my Lord as he's made himself known to my heart, and I say, what's happening within me? What do I really want to do? as I pursue this relationship. Seminars on biblical principles of living must no longer be regarded as a set of instructions that we're supposed to follow. Teaching on how to live under the new arrangement is more like somebody familiar with the city telling you how to get to a restaurant you want to get to. You don't know where you're going, but you know of a great restaurant. People have told you it's somewhere over in that part of the town. You're lost, and you stop and say to somebody, how do I get to this restaurant? They say, take a right at the light, two miles, and take a left. What's your response to that? All right, I'll try to do that. No, your response to that is, hey, thanks, because that's where I want to go. Now there's freedom. Now you're trusting what's internal as somebody else who maybe has been there before can give you some guidance, but now it's not a, I'll do it, I promise. Now it's, of course I'll do it. Thanks for the tip. It's a whole different mood, a whole different spirit. Christian freedom consists not in asking, what should I do, but rather in asking, what do I really want to do? One illustration to make my point, and we're going to quit. My wife asked me last week, I'm mad at my husband, what should I do? Old covenant question, right? Is that clear now? So I said to her, what do you want to do? She said, what's that got to do with it? You're a Christian? Yeah. Well, what do you want to do? I don't know, I never thought about that. What's the right thing to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? We had a great session. I don't know. I'm not sure what I want to do. I never thought of that before. Well, you want to kill him? Well, no, I don't want to kill him. You want to leave him? No, I really don't. You want to hit him? Certain times. No, I don't want to hit him. Do I want to keep away from him? No. What do you want to do? Don't you want to tell him that you're angry and hurt, but that you love him and you accept him as he is and move towards him? Don't you want to have a close relationship and move towards the man because you love him so much, even though he failed you in certain ways? Yeah. Well, then go do what you want to do. You're free. Trust your heart. You're free to do what you want. You're dead to the law. 
Folks, that's freedom. Do you hear a problem with that? I hear a bunch. How about when what you, when what you want to do is totally wrong? How about if you do want to leave your husband? Go ahead and do it. Hey, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. Continue in sin. Do whatever you want. You're dead to the law. Oh, no, God forbid. That's not what I'm teaching. What happens to what you really want to do clearly violates God's desires. Isn't it possible to take what I'm teaching today? Isn't it possible to take this idea of freedom that we're dead to the law, we can trust our hearts, we can do what we want to do? Isn't it possible to abuse that badly? How do we take the doctrine of freedom in Christ and learn to enjoy it as opposed to abuse it? What do we do when what we want to do doesn't square with the Bible at all? That'll be our topic for next week. Freedom, how to enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.